trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if you are just wrong think curious or if you are a dedicated wrong thinker who's going to stand for what's right and do what your conscience beckons you to do. But I'm glad you're part of my audience today and I'm thankful to have the opportunity to share hopefully some really great food for thought. I think I billed yesterday's show as a power-packed reality supplement. And I'm going to try and follow that same vein today. Uh, Our program is brought to you by great sponsors each day at this time by uh, people like MonticelloCollege.org, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. thought I'd start today with, uh, with a little talk about warlike language. Now, you've probably noticed this with, in, in politics in particular. seems like politicians really love to throw around the war thunder, right? We are in this battle to the, to the end, and we're going to conquer, and we're going to you know, beat and decimate the enemy. Anyway, very enemy-driven in many ways. I think sometimes it gets overused. In fact, I think sometimes I overuse it myself when I talk about there being a battle for your mind and the conflict raging around us. But I've got an essay that I want to share with you. This is from the Good Citizen blog. And it's on the silent war, meaning the, the mental conflict currently raging around us. And the subtitle here is, Every Good Thing in This World We Cry Out For You. Now it says, Did you think this war was going to fit in with your world? Your ideas? That's a quote from Hacksaw Ridge. And kind of sticks in my mind because my boy was watching this just a couple of weeks ago. But the good citizen writes, our war is a silent war. It cannot be measured in armaments or deployments on geographical or topographical maps that show no discernible divisions, no potential battlefields. In other words, it is by nature a deceptive war, cloaked by belligerents who fly under the radar of populations and deploy their armaments into the bloodstream of innocents, ill-equipped to recognize their body as targets having been sufficiently softened up by a lifetime of psychological disinformation shelling to their minds. These belligerents hide among their targets, masquerading as their trusted betters. They hide in plain sight on the boards of companies, in the administration of hospitals, at the captured agencies of governments, in the halls of Congress and parliaments of the West, and beside the overworked fiat printers of central banks, the greatest weapons of mass social destruction modernity has yet produced. They are the enemies of free peoples the world over. Their agenda is death, and in the absence of it, a subjugation to an engineered world of post-humanist dystopia of their design and for their benefit. Now, the good citizen says, In silent wars, you do not recognize the enemy because you do not comprehend the war. You cannot discern the terms of the battle. You're mocked and derided for entertaining conspiracies that dare recognize all its elements that have you surrounded. The victims who cannot see the frontiers of battle will suffer the brunt of the worst bombardments. There will be no nurse's station, no infirmary, no last rites for the volunteers who were conscripted out of fear and submitted through coercion the greatest sacrifice of war, 
their lives unawares. They will wear no scars, bear no pain, win no honors, or valiant parades posthumously. Their cries of suffering will be callously ignored by the institutions entrusted with rescuing them. Their widows or widowers will receive no letters of gratitude, no flags, no benefits or pensions. There will be no trace left that they were ever a casualty of a silent war on humanity, with no autopsy or even a death certificate that shrouds their status on behalf of the global evil that presently dominates all fronts. Mortality is the great equalizer when combatants are congruent on the terms of battle. There is no equalizer in a silent war waged by forces hiding in plain sight, performing as public servants of the self-anointed expert class, who've captured minds as flags using psychological operations to deceive and coerce. The lies and propaganda are everywhere packaged as facts, data, science, and truth, all unassailable weapons that must be blindly embraced by the captured minds, who will amplify them toward capturing further flags to be absorbed into the coalition of the hypnotized willing. Now that war is upon us again, those needed to face it and fight it are noticeably absent, absorbed by the very machine that will eat them. They do not even recognize an enemy. The stakes, the terms of battle for which they've already passively surrendered as volunteers for the cannon fodder brigade. They're working on behalf of the enemy and against their own interests and the futures of ones they love and hold dearest. There are no schools of study for silent war tacticians to be prepared for battles on these fronts. The guidebooks for this war are in the great tombs of literature that already line our shelves. The words of writers like Orwell, Huxley... Plato, Aristotle, Mill, Locke, Hobbes, Paine, von Clausewitz, Sun Tzu, Aquinas, Aurelius, and Seneca, just to name a few. They are in books of behavioral psychology, a preferred weapon of management, the great global evil. These can be found in staples of propaganda studies, media and communications, logic and reason, political and social philosophy, only damn fools would admit would omit the Gospels here. The teachings of Christ, the wisdom in the doctrines of Buddhism, Hinduism's Dharma or way of life, Shinto's orientation of ourselves among the natural world. There is no shortage of human knowledge or wisdom and guidance in written words that cannot be utilized to our benefit from all cultures of the world, from all faiths. It is the open mind powered by objective reason, never closed to updating its software of new ideas, nor fearful of challenging his own beliefs, that will be in the greatest numbers possible the fiercest brigade of resistance to global tyranny the world has ever known. They seek to seize these weapons with censorship and controlled demolitions of information and knowledge whenever it arises in sufficient numbers to challenge their power and undermine their agenda. Okay, there's a lot of allegory in that essay. This is, again, from The Good Citizen. This is a sub-stack you may even want to consider subscribing to, but I think that accurately describes the what we're up against. And here's the challenge. There are a lot of people who don't even recognize that uh, that this conflict is is taking place. They know something's going on because they feel conflicted. But to admit that there are systems that are doing everything within their power and even some stuff that's not yet within their power to try to obtain dominion over everyone. It's just too much. And, and you know, I have to admit, 
I sympathize with the people who, who don't see that yet or who are starting to recognize it but don't feel comfortable enough to say, oh, my word, is this? That's, that's really happening, isn't it? I mean, denial? I'm not, I'm not trying to be the armchair you know, psychiatrist here, but it's easier to deny things that are uncomfortable or to pretend that it doesn't exist. What elephant? I don't see any elephant in the room. Do you see an elephant? No, there's no elephant in the room. Than it is to face hard facts and then orient yourself and decide, what am I going to do about this? And the disadvantage that this, this puts many people at is they are under attack but they don't even realize it. They don't know that they're being targeted. And I have to offer this disclaimer. It's not because they have they, they lack character or because they're stupid or, or because they're evil. I think the more accurate term is uh, they're, they're bamboozled. So when you think about what uh, the good citizen is saying here, if you really want to protect your mind, if you want to protect your, your being against that, uh, that psychic warfare that's being waged against you, you got to pay closer attention to what you're feeding your mind. Now, hopefully I'm not being self-defeating in, in sharing this with you because it, it could sound a lot, well, Brian, you're trying to make me afraid. That's not my goal. And if I am making you afraid, I sincerely apologize because there's plenty of fear to go around. I'm not trying to add to that fear. But what I am trying to do is convey the seriousness of what we face and the absolute essential nature of it's got to start with you and with me. And it, it starts with us making the conscious choice to be careful about what we feed our minds. Now, look, is it? I'm, I'm as guilty as, as anybody of taking the easy route. If it's, you know, take the time to prepare a good, healthy meal or grab some fast food because that's more convenient, I'm going to lean toward the fast food. Besides, it's probably going to taste better than anything I can fix as well. But same principle applies. You can't have a healthy body and just feed it junk. You can't have a healthy mind if you're feeding it junk. So I'm going to try and balance this out with some things that will give you some good, uplifting mental nutrition. But you have to be the one to make the decision that that's a priority for you. And until you do, you may find yourself at the mercy of people who really don't have your best interest in mind. And you need to ask yourself, is, is that acceptable? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I always like to watch and see whenever the latest uh, column from James Bovard drops. I'm not pretending that uh, Mr. Bovard has all the answers, but man, he's got a really solid take on what's happening. Particularly if I want to know, you know, what is going on within the, the political circles uh, Jim Bovard has uh, he has a lot of experience uh, having worked in and around Washington D.C. for many many years, but he also has some really in- incredible insights into how the minds of the political class work. And uh, that's not to say that he's a sycophant or a supporter of what they're doing. He's actually uh, very well equipped to call them out. Case in point: This is a piece published by uh, Mises.org. 
Again, James Bovard is the author. The Media War on Canadian Truckers. Is freedom public enemy number one? He makes a pretty good case here, too. He says the denigration of the Canadian trucker protest convoy exemplifies how freedom is now the biggest villain of the COVID-19 pandemic. A Washington Post cartoonist portrayed the trucker convoy as fascism incarnate, while another Post column derided the freedom, or rather the toxic freedom convoy. So anyone who resists any government command is now apparently a public enemy. Bovard says the trucker protest was spurred by the Canadian government's sweeping COVID vaccine mandate. Many truckers believe the risks of the vaccine outweigh the benefit, and more importantly, that they have the right to control their own bodies. Now, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau declared on Monday, there is no place in our country for threats, violence, or hatred. Yeah, except for the hatred Trudeau whips up by denouncing vaccine mandate opponents as racist and misogynistic. And except for the threats and violence used by government enforcement agents to compel submission to any pandemic decree issued by Trudeau or other politicians. Now, he points out since the start of this pandemic, many people who boasted of their trust in science and data also believed that absolute power would keep them safe. According to their scorecard, anyone who objected to government commands was the equivalent of a heretic who must be condemned, if not banished, from every place except the cemetery. North of the border, Quebec epitomizes this intolerance with its new edict prohibiting unvaccinated individuals from shopping at Costco or Walmart. Now, the same critics who latch onto any obnoxious behavior by a few wayward Canadian truckers, MSNBC denounced them as a cult, to condemn freedom, are also happy to exonerate any American politician who pointlessly destroyed freedom during the pandemic with bizarre edicts. For instance, in December 2020, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti banned all unnecessary travel, including, without limitation, travel on foot, bicycle, scooter, motorcycle, automobile, or public transit. The mayor, who was caught violating California mask mandates at the National Football Conference championship game, offered no evidence to justify placing 4 million residents under house arrest. Governor Ralph Northam dictated that all Virginians must stay indoors from midnight until 5 a.m., with a few narrow exceptions. Federal Judge William Stickman IV condemned Pennsylvania's restrictions, saying broad population-wide lockdowns are such a dramatic inversion of the concept of liberty in a free society as to be nearly presumptively unconstitutional. Now, Bovard says preventing politicians from obliterating freedom now apparently is the worst form of tyranny. On Thanksgiving Eve 2020, the Supreme Court struck down Governor Andrew Cuomo's edict that limited religious gatherings in New York to 10 or fewer people while permitting far more leeway for businesses to operate. The court declared that Cuomo's rules were far more restrictive than any COVID-related regulations that have previously come before the court and far more severe than has been shown to be required to prevent the spread of the virus. An American Civil Liberties Union official fretted that the freedom to worship does not include a license to harm others or endanger public health. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe and Cornell Professor Michael Dorff warned that the Supreme Court was becoming a place like Gilead, the theocratic and misogynistic country in Margaret Atwood's dystopian The The Handmaid's Tale. Now, he says many progressives talk as if America faces a choice between reckless freedom and paternalism. In other words, submission to a benevolent elite. But regardless of Anthony Fauci's boundless conceit, omniscient officials have yet to come to the rescue. 
Government agencies have blundered catastrophically since the start of the pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention bollocks America's initial response by sending out faulty contaminated test kits that failed to detect the rapidly spreading virus to health agencies. Governors panicked and shut down schools, resulting in vast losses in learning and widening the achievement gap between affluent and low-income students. The vast majority of small businesses were locked down. Thousands were bankrupted in a futile effort to prevent an airborne virus from continuing to spread. Placing scores of millions of people under house arrest led to record-breaking fatalities for drug overdoses and a tidal wave of depression and anxiety. New York City's COVID vaccine passport regime failed to prevent the Big Apple from becoming the hottest spot in the nation for the Omicron variant. Now, Bovard goes on to say President Joe Biden portrayed the vaccines as a magic bullet and falsely promised that people who got injected would not get COVID. And then the CDC stopped counting breakthrough cases of COVID among the fully vaccinated, paving the way for a resurgence of the virus that has now infected more than 70 million Americans. Or maybe 200 million plus Americans, since the CDC previously stated that only one in four cases are diagnosed and reported. Whatever. Jim Bovard says the Food and Drug Administration is seeking to delay fully disclosing Pfizer's application for its cold vaccine approval for 75 years after Biden issued a mandate that forced hospitals to fire healthy, unvaccinated nurses. The CD said it was okay for hospitals to rely on COVID-positive nurses to treat patients, one of the biggest absurdities of the pandemic. Now, he concludes by saying freedom is not a panacea for every challenge in life, but it is far superior to boundless submission to tin horn dictators who know far less than they claim. Politicians like Trudeau and Biden, who's, who fuel mass rage against any group that does not kowtow to officialdom, are sowing seeds of hatred that will proliferate long after the pandemic ends. But he says in the long run, people have more to fear from politicians than from viruses. Like I say, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't mince words here. He, he just tells it straight. And I know it's hard to believe sometimes, or at least for me, it's, it's hard to grasp. How can people not see what is going on? How can they fail to recognize that all those promises and all those you know, mitigation things that were imposed on us and we were told we have to do this turned out to be for naught? I mean, nobody's clamoring to, to <clears throat> issue the mea culpa and say, look, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I'm really sorry that that we got that one totally wrong. I mean, I'd still be upset at the damage done, but I would be a lot more inclined to be forgiving and at least, you know, empathetic to people who said, look, we, we really thought we were doing the right thing. But we don't even get that. It's, it's instead, it's more of this doubling down and the sense of, well, we can't be wrong. After all, you have to obey us no matter what. I guess if I were to look at the bright side here, here's something that, that, just speaking for myself, one of the best things that I have learned over the last couple of years is I have found where my personal boundaries exist. They have become very clearly defined. Now, unfortunately, in the process of defining and discovering those personal boundaries, I've also found that uh, those are those are not acceptable to some people. That includes people who are very close to me, who you know, for whatever reason, have, have, you know, bought in, all in on, you know, the official narrative. But that's okay. You see, my personal belief in, in liberty and my maintenance of, of my own liberty doesn't require that people agree with me. The only thing it requires 
and this is the difficult part, is that they leave me alone. Just the way that I leave other people alone to make their decisions and to, uh, you know, choose what is best for them. I know, it still feels like we have a collision coming, or at least there's, there's kind of an ongoing butting of heads over this. But if you're one of those people who has found your boundaries or you've discovered, hey, actually there are things that I'm willing to stand for or I'm willing to walk away from a job. I'm willing to put my neck out there knowing full well that there are people lined up and ready to take a swing. I congratulate you for having the character to recognize that such limits exist and for having the courage to assert those limits. You're doing the right thing, even if it's a hard thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Here is my invitation for you to subscribe to my daily show notes. I'm not promising that they're going to, you know, unlock all the mysteries of life to you, but... Every day, I put together a list of articles, many of which I share, some I don't have time to share here on the program, but I I try to find the best principle-driven, not agenda or partisan-driven messages out there. And it is uh, really fun to, to put it together. It's fun to have a few annotations of my own, and I'm offering it to you absolutely free of charge. The only thing it's going to cost you is I need you to share your email address with me. So click the subscribe button. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Let me share these with you. I will not give or sell your email to anybody else. This is exclusively for my subscribers. And something if you're looking, you know, to stay better informed, these are suggested sources of information. You don't have to believe them. I'm just offering them as something that uh, could hopefully help you uh, come away with a little better understanding of what's up. You ever notice how totalitarian regimes all seem very keen on keeping religion under wraps? You know, at first I thought, well, of course, it's the classic battle between good and evil. And, you know, I still do believe there's, there is a larger spiritual dynamic that's playing out. This is the war in heaven continued, and that to me makes sense, but... Bringing it back to just a a strictly secular point of view, totalitarian regimes, now let me put it this way, totalitarian mindsets cannot abide the idea of a competing moral authority. And for earthly governments, even if they're not despotic, they still don't like the idea of an overarching uh, moral authority that trumps them. Because if, uh, you know, someone in power says, hey, everybody needs to do this, It's possible that there are people who say, nope, my conscience, my belief in God says otherwise. I mean, truth be told, slavery would not have been abolished in the U.S. had it not been for people standing up at the pulpit of their churches and saying, this is wrong. You know, I'm not trying to be mean when I point this out, but it was codified in law. Slave catchers, that was a legit, uh, you know, that was a legit profession. The law said... You find a fugitive slave, you got to turn them over to the slave catcher so they can get that person back to their owner. Got a great article here from Albin Sadar that gets right to the heart of the matter, asking the question, who died and made you boss? And this may be uncomfortable for some because the subtitle here says many churches across America are saying, in effect, God and what he says in the Bible aren't 
the ultimate authority. It's the whims of current culture that reign supreme. So if you have felt like maybe you were on the uh, outside, I think you're going to like this commentary. Albin Sadar says, When I was a kid on the playground of St. Aloysius uh, Elementary School, if someone became too pushy or demanding about the rules of a game we were all playing, another kid would inevitably call them out saying, Who died and made you boss? Now he says, ever since our, our collective mindset of right and wrong got supplanted and because some brainiacs decided there was no God, people have decided that they are their own bosses. And therefore, whoever shouts the loudest or shoves the hardest is in control. Now, before this, the tenets and traditions of the Judeo-Christian religions set the bar by which we were willing to subject ourselves. He says, I grew up in a suburb just north of Pittsburgh called Reserve Township, where my father was one of four full-time police officers. Reserve Township had a few houses of worship and was populated with all kinds of people at various stages of belief in a supreme being, some ardently questioning that being's existence, some denying its presence in the universe altogether. But one thing that everyone agreed upon the ground, were the ground rules of the moral law. Remember, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. No one disagreed with the golden rule. People respected one another's opinions, could even ardently debate them, and everyone stayed inside the framework of fair play. But now it seems like every week someone within the anonymous woke crowd comes up with yet another new phrase or idea that we're all supposed to incorporate into our daily lives. Who are these people? And why are we listening to them? I mean, who died and made them boss? And he says, what happened to the influence of the traditional church? Could it be that inch by inch the church gave away its authority in order to accommodate a few more pew sitters? Is that how it began? After straying from its moorings in the teachings found in the Bible on small matters like marriage and divorce, is it no wonder that the church would go lukewarm on such hot-button issues like abortion and homosexuality? The church's stance on such serious life and lifestyle concerns appeared to the culture as counterintuitive. Don't we have freedom to do whatever we want with our own bodies? And doesn't God, the God of that famous slogan, God is love, doesn't he want us to be happy with who we are and what will fulfill us as human beings? So pastors who wanted to keep their pews warmed started giving in to the new morality by watering down scriptural things until all that was left was water and not the holy kind either. He says, about 25 years ago, I was having lunch with a friend who was on the verge of hitting it big as an author. Meanwhile, I'd been thinking about writing a book focused on the current state of the Christian church in America. Out of my frustration with the church that he and I were attending back then, my book would explore the well-meaning nature of many pastors trying to relate with hardcore unbelievers in large metropolitan cities with diverse and high-minded populations, such as New York. My book idea, The Church Facade, would address those tuned into the culture pastors who felt they had the key to reaching spiritually hard-nosed urbanites and ultimately make Christianity popular and accepted in their spheres of influence. The pastor at our church, for example, certainly espoused the gospel and his preaching dovetailed nicely with the scripture reading every Sunday. But mixed into the 45-minute sermons were opinions on the latest articles, surveys, and op-eds from the pages of the New York Times. Then there were the usual straw man arguments that began with phrases like, conservatives will say this, and liberals believe that, followed by, but the Bible tells us this. But he says, the way the pastor dis- represented my take on issues and that of my conservative friends was always distorted. 
The pastor framed things so they would fit neatly into his examples, but it simply wasn't a true representation of any of our thinking, or at best, his examples would be a cherry-picking of ideas taken completely out of context. And I couldn't help but wonder if liberals were thinking the same thing about his representation of their ideas. He says, What I most lamented during the pastor's sermons each week, however, was the fact that he didn't spend his pulpit time delving deeply into the Word of God found in that morning scripture reading. I could read the New York Times any day of the week or discuss conservative and liberal ideas anywhere. But the message I was looking for in the church was that deeper understanding from a preacher who knows scriptures inside and out, presumably, who knows the Hebrew and Greek origins of words and passages and idioms and context, again, presumably, and is ready to let you have it, spiritually speaking. Smart people of all stripes, whether exploring the faith for the first time or those with long-time doubts about its claims, would receive an unadulterated earful that just might give them something substantive to noodle. Over the decades, this particular New York City church has exploded in popularity and has expanded its reach with sister churches nationally and internationally. Terrific! Maybe. Unfortunately, along the way, it also adapted itself to the culture's demands, putting an upbeat Christian twist on social justice, critical race theory, state-mandated vaccinations, even Marxism itself. It was like the church put a Jesus spin on these inherently destructive worldviews. The woke culture said, jump, and the church said, we'll show you jumping. We Christians can jump as high as heaven. Now, the true high ground has been seeded. In effect, this particular church and so many like it across America are saying God and what he says in the Bible aren't the ultimate authority. It's the whims of current culture that reign supreme. But there really is good news. There are pastors out there who see what's happening and are not afraid to face the pressure head on. Those who stand in their pulpits preaching bold, pull-no-punches sermons and who unabashedly speak truth to power. Now, they've observed that only a fresh, great or new great awakening, a revival of biblical proportion, you might say, will awaken the churches and, by extension, the nation as a whole. Albin Sadar says we can only hope, and those of us who believe, pray that it's not too late. He says, I was reminded the other day of a funny plaque I saw many decades ago in a gift shop in my college town of Clarion, Pennsylvania. The inscription was perfect for a student's dorm room wall. God is back, and boy, is he mad. Well, he says, let's pray for the first part of that, in time to avoid the second. Pretty good stuff there. And I, I think he's got a good point, and I... Um, my friend Connor Boyack has actually started doing a new podcast. I think it's called Sunday Musings. I, I, Connor, forgive me if I've if I've uh, given the title wrong, but that's a question that I'm hearing a lot of people ask about. Uh, you know, a lot of the the dominant religious influence out here in the Intermountain West. Where are the church leaders who stand up and you know? They don't take into consideration, is this going to, uh, what are the optics of this going to be like? You know, is this going to aggravate the woke crowd? Is it going to, you know, make the politicians feel uncomfortable? It's almost as if there's an effort to win the approval of the world. And yet the approval of the world, I think in the grand scheme of things, is one of the worst things that you can have. Because it's focused on all the wrong things. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com. And if you are looking to really make the commitment and get yourself a solid food storage program, this is the place I would go. They have a number of different food storage brands available, 25-year shelf life. So, you know, this is money that's well spent. This is a resource you're going to use. The key is to buy that food today. The prices are not going to be getting lower as we go forward. But have that food on hand for, you know, a rainy day, an unexpected job loss, perhaps a major illness or something that otherwise throws a wrench into your perfect plans. And the peace of mind that comes with this kind of self-reliance, it's, it's very real. But it's something that requires action sooner than later. Click on the link I provide in the show notes to lifesavingfood.com. I can tell you this, Kendall Whiting, the owner of, of Life Saving Food, will give you a 20% discount, also charge you no sales tax, and will give you free delivery. So there's some pretty serious incentive to, uh, you know, click on that button and see what you could use. Again, lifesavingfood.com. So I saw a Twitter video earlier today, just a short clip, and it was a school superintendent talking about uh, training children as young as two years old to wear face masks. Now, Maybe this is going to upset the algorithms of the various, you know, AI out there looking for forbidden phrases and stuff, but I thought it was pretty well understood by this point. For whatever benefit masks may provide for whatever, whether it's just helping people overcome shyness or, or you know, preventing bad breath, I don't know. Whatever it is, it does not prevent the spread of COVID. And it hasn't from the beginning. And, you know, the, the Biden administration has, has bought, you know, millions upon millions of masks. And they've sent them out, you know, free to the public, free, except for the taxpayers who are paying for it. And stores, you know, that get these free masks are putting them out there in open air bins. Where people can come in and handle, well, no, I want this one. No, let me put it back. The idea that, uh, wow, you know, these masks are sterile. And, of course, they're, they're N95, so they're going to really do a good job. Not if they're out there sitting in an open bin with people handling them. And, you know, maybe somebody comes by and thinks, oh, this is where I dispose of my used mask, and drops it in there. Wouldn't you love to pick up somebody's used mask and slap it on your face? But here was the chilling part. Again, I, I think it's, it's becoming fairly well understood. Masks are not the panacea. But here was this administrator, this, this superintendent, talking about the importance of training children early to wear masks. And the chilling part about this, and again, I got to tip my hat to Connor Boyack, is it wasn't a matter of, you know, we're teaching these kids how to protect themselves against infectious disease. It was about training them to be compliant and to follow the instructions that people in authority are giving them. I know, I, I, I've, maybe I'm a bad person, but I have a real serious problem with that. Got an article here from D. Chadwell. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Symbols of shame. D. Chadwell writes, Two years ago, when the news of COVID engulfed the nation, we all donned whatever masky device we could rig and ventured forth to stock up on toilet paper. And we heard to our dismay that some jobs were essential and some weren't. But we bought into that. It seemed otherworldly, 1984-ish and scary. Then, after just a few weeks, the news of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin started to surface and the crisis seemed manageable. Phew, I thought, thank you, God, for providing such a timely discovery. We'll be able to dodge this bullet. 
I had failed to realize what bullet was racing toward us. For despite evident cures, the lockdowns continued. The masks, soon shown to be useless, not only stayed on our faces, but became religious icons, virtue-signaling devices. We stopped striking up conversations with strangers. Our kids sat hour after hour, day after day, in front of computer screens that presented to them the bare minimum of an education, if that. We quit going to the movies. Out to eat became just that. Out in the cold on makeshift patios, no parties, no church, no jobs. We built huge makeshift hospitals to handle the anticipated caseload. People were dying, but whether or not they were dying of COVID had yet to be established. No one asked why we weren't using the cheap, available miracle drugs to save folks. My doctor told me he wasn't allowed to prescribe either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. Allowed? Both drugs were FDA-approved for other uses, so what's the problem? All right, the money that can be made selling a vaccine, that's the problem. No need for a vaccine if the cure is fast, easy, and cheap. Now my naivete began shriveling, my cynicism burgeoned. Then Cuomo sent death bombs to old folks' homes, homes where the elderly were being denied contact with their loved ones, and tens of thousands of these people died and died alone. And we did nothing about it. People lost their jobs, their lives, their homes, and yet we dutifully strapped on our masks and bought more toilet paper. Our children masked, sequestered, and restricted became suicidal, and we felt incapable of doing anything about it. Fauci kept adding layers to our masks, which we knew didn't work. And he still kept his job. He's still pushing both masks and the vaccines, and neither do much good. Both do a lot of harm, but still, he keeps his job. He should, by rights, not only be fired, but be locked up somewhere ugly. But we do nothing. We hear rumors of powerful people advocating for depopulation, a clinical, mechanical, hidey word for killing folks in huge numbers, yet we don't resist. And while all that is going on, the schools are trying to groom our children for deviant sexual behavior. Drugs and more COVID are pouring over our southern border. Nothing is being done. Our economy is circling the drain, and even though we know what's causing it, we do nothing about it. But we'll wear masks and we'll accost others who don't. We act like the air itself is poison, like our fellow man is more likely foe than friend. The mask has become a talisman to ward off evil spirits. The vaccine, a magic potion, and both are highly symbolic. The mask silences us, depersonalizes us, separates us from others. To highlight that focus, we are constantly being urged to socially distance. An oxymoron if there ever was one. The mask is our ring in the nose. The vaccine says loud and clear, we own you and we can do whatever we want to you. People are being forced to play Russian roulette with a gun loaded by the government corporate slash media syndicate. If it isn't a game a wise person will happily play, this firing squad game, damned if we do, damned if we don't. But are we damned? Not really. We just have to tear off our chains. Oh no, say evangelical Christians, we're supposed to obey the government as per Romans 13. But we can't forget Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, but were spared death in the furnace. Or Daniel, who had to step into the lion's den because he prayed to his God. Or Jesus healing the leper on the Sabbath against Jewish law. There's a point past which we don't have to go. What our government and sycophantic corporations are asking of us is not only dangerous, but totally silly. 
It's not like we don't know that these drastic measures do nothing to combat the disease. It's not like this is still an emergency. Emergencies are sudden, require instant, often uninformed decisions. But it's been two years. There has never been a two-year emergency, a two-year recovery period, sure. But the predicament is, or should be, short-lived, and any government worthy of being called a government shouldn't take this long to figure things out. It's time we called foul on this one. Now, Deanna Chadwell says, besides which, the government is forcing on school cho- what the government is forcing on school children is utterly damaging and immoral. The dissolution of small businesses is equally unfair and immoral. The specter of losing one's job or risking death taking the shot can't possibly be the will of a just God. Even if we have to acknowledge that Biden sits in the White House only because God allows it temporarily. At some point, she says, we are going to have to yank the ring out of our noses, stomp our collective feet and say, no more. We need to follow Canada's lead. Never thought I'd say that. And grind everything to a halt until, number one, we've removed all COVID restrictions. Number two, we've sorted out our election mess so the elections can be secure. And number three, we've removed Fauci et al. from office. And number four, we've solved our presidential problem, not only removing Biden from the Oval Office, but preventing Harris or Pelosi from moving in. Now, Dina Chadwell says, look, I no longer wear a mask in public. I find it humiliating to be required to do something so silly, so useless, so dehumanizing. I made the mistake of taking the first two shots, but she says I won't take a booster. I'm just done. One of my ancestors, a Thomas Birch, was part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1600s. I'm an American, and she says, I am done with this nonsense. Well, that pretty well tells it like it is. (laughs) I, I will just leave that without any further comment. You can find a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com to this and other articles and commentaries shared in today's show. I can't help it. I admire the people who have found that uh, fire in the belly, so to speak, that uh, urges them to stand and stand firm. And I pray that their courage is contagious, more contagious than uh, whatever variant of COVID is making the rounds these days. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome to the show. You know, I'm going to start out today by telling you this program is not for everybody. Now, I'm not trying to show you the door, but I'm going to tell you that some people are going to hear this message and go, ah, nope, it's not for me. And that's okay. That doesn't mean they're bad. It doesn't mean that they're wrong and I'm right. But I want you to know I am specifically speaking to the honest of heart, people who are humble in spirit and who recognize that despite all the assurances that, oh, no, no, we're in charge. We've got this under control that a lot of what's happening to us and, and around us today is not the norm. 
and we should not be willing to embrace it as the norm and just meekly go along because someone in authority said you have to do this. So if you are the kind of person who is seeking truth, even if that truth sometimes comes with some discomfort or even pain, well, you've definitely found the right place. I have great sponsors who make this show possible. I hope you'll uh, take the time to visit with them. If you don't need what product or service they're offering at the moment, drop them a note and let them know that their message is reaching your ears. They include MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com. Reach out and tell Spencer I said hi. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also located in St. George, and LifesavingFood.com. You know, one of the dumbest things that I allowed myself to believe is that life is supposed to be comfortable. And I guess it was more like I believed that as life goes on, it becomes less and less complicated and more and more comfortable. And basically, it just gets easier. Now, I think I first picked up that notion as a kid, and it was probably some misplaced interpretation of, well, you know, the adults get to do whatever they want. Life is really good, you know. If mom and dad want to stay up and watch MASH and eat nachos after us kids have been put to bed, man, they've got it made. <laughs> you know, of course, this is before I understood things like taxation and mortgages and health insurance and the stress that goes along with raising kids, but I digress. Time and experience have shown me that the very best things that have happened in my life always happened outside of my comfort zone. Comfort and becoming a good person are mutually exclusive concepts. This doesn't mean you have to be miserable all the time, but it means you've got to be willing to take some risk and do things differently if you really want to become your better self. I, I just uh, I came across, uh, thanks to a good friend, there's a, there's a podcast out there, and I'm, I'm going to get the guy's name wrong if I don't do this carefully. His name is uh, Andy Frisella. And I'm going to warn you, Andy Frisella uses the F word, very, very liberally. He cusses like, a, like an upset sailor. At the same time, this guy speaks the truth about as plainly as I have ever heard anybody speak it. I mean, he has a remarkable amount of clarity. So, you know, for some people, it's a deal breaker. Now, if there's profanity, I'm not going to listen to it. But for those who are willing, if you could, if you could sit through a George Carlin, you know, monologue and and find the humor and even the wisdom in what he had to say, you know, Carlin sprinkled his uh, vocabulary with with expletives as well. Andy Frazella may have a bit of a blue streak there, but wow, does this guy make sense? I want to shift gears a little bit here and and share with you a message from Alan Stevo. And this kind of ties in with Andy Frizzella's message, which is if you want to make America, you know, if you want to fix what's wrong with America, you have to start by being a great American, which means you have to own who you are. Make yourself a better person and live your life with the kind of freedom that people around you will will be able to see. It's not just what you, they hear you say. It's how they see you live your life. It's undeniable. By example, you're showing my freedom matters to me. And I thought his message dovetailed very nicely with Alan Stevo's latest column published on LewRockwell.com. Repetitions matter. Now, Alan Stevo says, try. Try again. Ask yourself how you did. Ask yourself what you could do better. Then try again. Do that more. Perfect your form. Do less of what you're doing wrong. Keep repeating what you're doing right. Do it some more. Now, he says, your grade school gym instructor may have had you repeating the same behavior until your muscles understood the movement. 
Your high school wrestling coach may have blown that whistle over and again, drilling the same drill repeatedly until you knew it perfectly and the motions emerged from you naturally. Your first grade teacher may have shown you how to write with those inexperienced hands in thousands of awkward repetitions until it turned into a fluid and comfortable moment. Somewhere along the way, someone in your life operated using this process. They ran you through the repetitions over and again. Now, he says, I sometimes run grassroots meetings, and the goal is not to change the globe today. The goal is to get repetitions in and to improve. Little by little, each person grows more capable in his own life, moving toward flawless execution. Alan Stevo says, sometimes I write articles about face masks. The goal is not to change the globe today. The goal is to get repetitions in and to improve little by little. Each person grows more capable in his own life, moving toward flawless execution. Now here he cuts right to the chase and says face mask wearing is a disgusting practice, a filthy rag, an illogical lie. And he says, I despise those, the, the mandatory masking policy for all the sickness and inherent uh, deceit in those policies. But it's not just about the face mask, though. He says, if it were, I would have written a few articles once upon a time and moved on to more significant battles. Among other things, the face mask is about repetition. In the face mask, the tyrants of corona communism have given us a gift. It's a better gift than anything I could have ever dreamt up. In the American public, they encountered a flabby, docile population that could talk freedom and know a few theories and had some entertaining and sharp-witted social media accounts. But it was a population that did not know freedom. Even some of the best were rich with head knowledge, but poor of experience. They were strong with theory, weak on street smarts. They were full of ideas, but lacking common sense. Shortly after 9-11, the government said, Go to your room, child. Go to your bedroom. Let the adults handle this. And adult Americans somehow complied. Two decades later, flabby and untrained, the population had almost entirely forgotten what living a life of freedom felt like. Hardly could they be expected to remember what needing freedom like you need your next breath feels like. But that need for freedom is what's required in order to be free. Now here he says, look, it was once occasional tyranny. Now it's ever-present tyranny, but that too can be used for good. Alan Stevo says, on April 3rd, 2020, with the implementation of CDC face mask guidance and its duplication far and wide, the tyrants of corona communism gave us a tangible, ever-present opportunity to exercise freedom. Not once in a while, not just when you were being outlandish, not just when a police officer felt like enforcing any of the libraries full of tyrannical laws at his disposal. No, it's not how it used to be. That was occasional tyranny. Under the occasional tyranny of yesteryear is not how life today is lived. The tyranny now is ever-present. It's in every door, every store, every business, in your face, signs, fights, threats. Everywhere, high-handed, always self-important, constantly smug, thoroughly prideful, incessantly pontificating, limitlessly vainglorious, attentively self-aggrandizing claims of moral superiority. Crude remarks, ignorant boasts, incompletely thought through, shy in the face of logic, contemptuous of honesty, dismissive of the thought process, dismissive of the, th of the scientific method, Dismissive of, uh, dismissive of the very nature of free discussion among a free people. Arrogant in submission. 
plagiaristic claims of sincerity lifted from the nearest authority figure, half-baked in their presentation, so lacking in any sense of authenticity, aside from an authentic desire to obey at all costs. Mindless capitulation to titles, acquiescent compliance to white coats, deferentially yielding all formerly boasted values in the face of influence, with a tameness, meekness, malleability for those once professed core values. He says the obedient minority is encouraged to lord over the silent majority, many of whom themselves bought into it all. Yes, the tyranny is now ever-present. The obedient minority, you know, they, they, they really feel like we are standing on the moral high ground. But he says to point this out isn't intended to whine about it. Alan Stevo says, I pointed out to glory with you in the opportunity that this nearly omnipresent oppression presents. Ah, you weren't expecting to take it in a positive direction, now were you? Now, unfortunately, we're coming up on our break here, so I've got to tap the brakes here briefly. I will include a link to this article in today's show notes, which you can find at thebrianhideshow.com. And if you are interested in this and other articles, other information resources, guests that I have on, I share those resources as well in my show notes. You can subscribe just by clicking the subscribe button. Give me your email address, and I'll drop a copy of this in your inbox each and every day that I do the show. All right, we're going to pay a couple of bills. We will be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article by Alan Stevo. And I got to say, I have seen a number of people rise to the occasion in the last couple of years as, as what I think we can honestly call tyranny has really intensified and, and just kind of coalesced around us. It has been an honor to watch people rise up and, and answer a calling. And I... I know not everybody's going to agree with this, but I'm going to put this out there anyway just because I, I really believe this with all my heart. I believe that uh, that God gives us opportunities to step up and become much, much better than we are at this moment. I think he calls us sometimes to personal greatness, and it doesn't look the same. It doesn't always mean, yes, I will be uh, making an acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize Oftentimes it's in small ways, but sometimes people are called to speak up and be a voice of truth, and they run with it. They embrace it. And I think Alan Stevo is a perfect example of someone who has felt and answered this calling and magnified it in a way that he has brought courage and conviction to people who, you know, it's not that they were being cowardly, but they just weren't sure. How do I proceed? And by word and deed, Alan Stevo has, has really let out. Now, I know it sounds like you're quite the fanboy here, but I've been following the guy's writings now for the better part of the last two years. I do see greatness in, in how he approaches these topics as well as the message that he has, which is so based in freedom. So this article is about how repetitions matter, and this particularly pertains to how you exercise your muscles of freedom. You've got to be in the habit 
of knowing, you know, how to live like a free person. So he breaks it down here. He says the mechanics of, of you, you can see the mechanics of saying no to a face mask. They're the same as the mechanics of saying no to a vaccine. They're the same mechanics as standing up to a police officer. They're the same mechanics as shouting down a lynch mob. They're the same as telling an elected official in close confines that it's time to stop this. They're the same as persuading a prosecuting attorney that it's time to recompense the crimes of this period in history. They are the same mechanics as identifying your boundaries, communicating your boundaries, and defending your boundaries. They're the same mechanics as identifying your values, communicating your values, defending your values. They're the same mechanics as telling whatever demonic influence comes into your life, no, shut your mouth. You have no authority to speak. Your words mean nothing here. No more. But the first step requires one to take a risk. He says, for the overwhelming majority of the population and in almost all situations, the dread felt by any level of risk is the same, really. Inexperience with risk-taking makes gradients of risk impossible for the individual to identify and accordingly leaves that individual feeling mortally afraid in the face of all fear. So he says, consider these drastically different outcomes. A risk-taking behavior with an unknown outcome may cause you to be embarrassed or it may cause you to die. Now, despite the vast gulf between the bid and the ask, either prospect can be seen as equally terrifying by many. I mean, you could get fired or you may be laughed at. You might be looked at in askance by authority or you may be chewed out and ridiculed for decades. You could be called a bad name like anti-vaxxer or Trump supporter or you may be arrested and have the book thrown at you by a judge imprisoned for decades. The fear many feel at any of those prospects is nearly the same. It takes a lot of experience to <laughs> excuse me, discern the levels of dread associated with the varying levels of risk. It takes a lot of courage to gain that experience. As if identifying those various gradients of fear were not enough of a challenge, it then takes even greater effort to conquer that fear. Many people are as afraid of being looked at disapprovingly by a person in authority as they are of dying. It's understandable why the majority of the population is compared metaphorically to the skittish sheep. Sheep are as scared of an authoritative there is as they are as scared of an authoritative sheepdog's shift in posture as they are of the butcher's knife. In fact, they're often more frightened of authority than they are of actual danger. Now Alan Stevo says every checkpoint is a gift. If you make it so, he says the days since the Ides of March 2020 are a gift if you make it so. And if you're not seizing that opportunity, you don't realize the chance you're passing up. Every checkpoint, every single checkpoint is a chance to sharpen your sword, hone your dagger, true your weapons. By the time the checkpoints end, an army of warriors unlike any the enemy ever could have imagined will be will be fierce, hungry, and unwilling to accept the compromise of being handed most of the liberties they knew in twenty twenty in twenty nineteen rather. Now once you can recognize it as such, there's never any reason to see your perceived feelings of fatigue as anything more than a temporary consequence of hard, repetitive, dedicated training that makes you better. Out of the flabby, sleepy populace that the world once knew America to be are, as we speak, rising fierce fighters. And this is a very exciting thing to see. However, something even more exciting than that is taking place. 
The longer victories denied them, the fiercer those fighters become. Before long, talking about securing rights unknown since 2019 will bore them. See, victory to many has become obvious. Those who oppose truth grow increasingly easy to villainize by the day. The enemies of truth are unrelenting in the face of their wrongness. Trusted institutions, trusted figureheads, trusted administrators, trusted thought leaders have been confronted with the truth, and their reactions to the truth have proven that they can never again be trusted in positions of authority. Every day this battle is prolonged guarantees a more extreme close to the drama of corona communism. Left to close on the victory that has already been won, left to bring into undeniable reality the debates that have already been won, he says don't be surprised if the heroes of that fight will be left unsatisfied unless they roll back guaranteed freedoms to 1919 or even 1819. The tyrant overplayed his hand. He continues to do so by the day. The pain he ensures himself multiplies as he extends the fight needlessly. Now, the heroes are men and women shaped by the ever-present checkpoints that corona communism brought into their lives. They're also men and women shaped by the response that bold individuals hungry for freedom offered at those checkpoints. Never again can you wear that mask. Not just because it's a lie, not just because you don't want to, not just because your children and many others are looking to you for leadership. But when you do, when you do wear that mask, you are denying yourself the training and the repetitions that you, you made for a time such as this. And you're being granted to prepare, and they're being granted to prepare you to arrive at the victorious side of this great battle. The hill to die on is not some distance away. The time to stand up is not just over the horizon. The oasis of liberty ahead on your path that demands no vigilance, no courage, no fortitude from you is just a mirage. Life is here, it's now, it's in your face, it always has been. But for those who didn't recognize it, the enemy has overplayed his hand and given you a gift of a face mask mandate. Now what he's saying here is, life is uncomfortable, but don't be distracted by it. Nor the lies, nor the depravity. They fed you the lie that life would be comfortable. Once you got comfortable in that thought, they denied you even that comfort. The enemy is a liar. It is all lies. When will you accept that? Don't be distracted by his lies. The enemy is depraved. There is no limit to the enemy's depravity. Let me save you time. Every day and around every corner, you'll find the new extreme of depravity if you search for it. He constantly searches, reaches new frontiers and recognizes his, his special power to divert the attention of those who almost worshipfully, worshipfully turn their attention to the latest frontier of depravity. Please do not make that your hobby. Every form of social media is filled with those who make that their hobby. Do not be distracted by his depravity. Focus not on your enemy. Focus on your work, your values, step by step, repetition by repetition. Win this moment and then win the next moment. Win the moment after that. He says every moment is a hill to die on. And before you know it, life will bring you challenges you never knew you could surmount that the enemy was convinced you could never surmount. But just keep going through the repetitions. Forward on a path of greater and greater excellence. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, and if you are settling anywhere in the state of Utah, you need to know it is a hot real estate market. There is so much competition. Homes are selling so quickly, you just don't have time to dawdle. So you find something you really like, you want to make sure that uh, you have, you know, the, the ability to act on it quickly. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather understands the ins and outs of what lenders and borrowers need. She has decades of experience. Count on her to help you quickly get the loan you need at the best rates possible. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Man, I just feel on fire after sharing that uh, that commentary from Alan Stevo. And and you know, maybe maybe I don't make a very good cheerleader, right? I'm just uh, I'm just someone who believes strongly in standing up for what is right. And I love the people who can light that fire under the rest of us. So here's kind of an odd topic to to delve into, but I want to ask you, is nostalgia a good thing or is it a bad thing? I guess the answer may depend on who you ask and maybe what they're thinking at that moment. Edward Curtin, in an article published on Lou Rockwell earlier today, has some really keen insights on what nostalgia is and what it isn't. In fact, he explains why he's nostalgic for the future. Check this out. He says, despite its pedigree as a fundamental element in civilization's greatest stories, Nostalgia has come to be associated with treacly sentimentality, defeatism, and spurious spiritual inclinations. Homer, Virgil, Dante, biblical writers, and their ilk would demure, of course. But they've been dead for a few years, so progress's mantra urges us to get on with it. This is now. But now is always, and like its twin, exile, nostalgia is perpetual. The aching for home from Greek algus, pain plus nostos, homecoming, is not simply a desire for the past, whether in reality or imagination, time or place, but a passionate yearning for the best from the past to be brought into the future. I kind of like that definition. Now, nostalgia may be more a long ache of old people, but it's also a feeling that follows everyone along life's way. Its presence may be shorter in youth, and it may be brief, intermittent, and unrecognized, but it is there. Surely it grows with experience. Everyone, As everyone knows, a taste, a smell, a sight, a sound, a song can conjure up a moment's happiness, a, a reverie of possibility. Paradise regained, but differently. A yearning recognized as seen for the first time how Van Gogh's blue paint opens a door to ecstasy. Or a line of poetry cracks open a space in one's heart for prospective love. Hope reborn as an aperture to the, to the beyond imagined, reimagined rather, and made possible. Now Edward Curtin says there's no need to ever leave where we are to find that we are already no longer there. For living is a perpetual leaving, taking, and the ache of loss is its price. But like all pains... It's one we wish to relive in the future, and in order to make a future, we must be able to imagine or remember it first. 
We are all exiled in our own ways. Home was yesterday and our lost homes lie in our futures. If we hold to the dream of homecoming, whatever that may mean to each person. But it also has a universal meaning. Since we dwell on this earth together, our one home for our entire human family. Now he says, you may think I'm engaging in fluff and puff and flimsy imaginings, but no. All across the world, there are hundreds of millions of exiles forced by wars, power politics, poverty, starvation, destructive capitalism, and modernization's calamitous consequences to leave their homes and suffer the disorientation of wandering. Emigration, immigration, salvaging bits of the old and strange new lands, thus is their plight. So much lost and small hopes found in nostalgic remembering, piecing together the fragments. But he says, in a far less physical sense, the homeless mind is the rule today. There are very few people these days who don't wish to somehow return to a time when the madness that engulfs us didn't exist. To escape the whirligig of fragmented consciousness in which the world appears, in other words, is presented by the media, as a pointillistic painting whose dots move so rapidly that a coherent picture is near impossible. This feeling is widespread, and it's not just a question of politics. It crisscrosses the world following the hyper-real unreality of the technologies that join us in a state of transcendental homelessness and anxiety. All the propaganda about a new normal and a digital disembodied future ring hollow. The Great Reset is the Great Nightmare. Nothing seems normal anymore, and the future seems even less so. The world has become Weirdsville. This is something that most people, young and old, feel, even if they can't articulate it. The feeling that all the news is false and that some massive con game is underway is pandemic. Here's an insignificant bit of nostalgia, and he says, I mention it because it points beyond itself then and now. It has always been nostalgia for the future. I think it's a commonplace experience. Edward Curtin says, when I was in high school, there was a tiny cheese shop on Lexington Avenue and 85th Street in New York City near the subway that I took to and home from school. It was the size of a walk-in closet. Thousands of cheeses surrounded you when you entered. The smells were overwhelming. I would often stop in there with empty pockets on my way home from school. The proprietor, knowing I was in awe of the thousands of cheeses, would often give me little samples with pieces of crusty French bread. He would regale me with tales of Paris and the histories of the various European cheeses. He would emphasize their livingness, how they breathed. By the door was a large basket filled with long loaves of fragrant French bread flown in every morning from Paris by Air France. Now, these were the days before every supermarket sold knockoff versions of the genuine thing. Each long loaf was in a colorful French tricolored paper bag. Now, those loaves of bread in the French colors always transported me to Paris, a place I, have never, I had never been, but whose language I was studying. Then and for years afterward, I was nostalgic for a Paris that was not yet part of my physical experience. How could this be, I asked myself. One day I realized that I was not nostalgic for Paris or the cheese shop, nor the bread or the, or the cheese, which I'd tasted many, time, many times, rather, but for the paper bags the bread came in. Why? Well, he says the answer, the question rather, had perplexed me until I realized my notion of nostalgia was wrong. Those bags had always represented the future for me. The birds of flight, a sign of freedom beckoning as my youthful world expanded. My nostalgia for the Air France bags was a way to go, way to go back in order to go forward. 
not to wallow in sentimentality in the good old days, but to read the entrails for their prophetic message. The small life world is limiting. Expand your horizons. It was not a question of jumping on a plane and going somewhere different, although that in time would also be good. It was not an invitation to revisit that cheese shop as if that were possible, for the store was long gone, and in any case it wouldn't mean the same thing. It wasn't a desire to become a teenager again. You cannot repeat an experience. Despite F. Scott Fitzgerald writing, you can't repeat the past, why of course you can. The past in that sense is quicksand, a death wish. For many people, and this is uh, prevalent thinking of under the prevalent understanding of nostalgia as an exclusively negative way of thinking, embittered nostalgia is their way of denying the present and the future, often by the fictitious creation of the good old days when everything was supposedly so much better. But he says nostalgia can also be an impetus to create a better future, a reminder that good aspects of what has been lost need to be regained to change the course of the present's future trajectory. Today, most people are bamboozled by world events. As an idiot wind blows through the, pr- pr- the putrescent words of the media sycophants who churn out their endlessly deceptive and confusing propaganda on behalf of their elite masters. Given a few minutes' peace of mind to analyze this drivel, a tranquility destroyed by the electronic frenzy, it becomes apparent that their fear, anxiety, and contradictory reports are intentional part of a strategy to pound the public into drooling, quaking morons. But many people in their better moments do recall times when they experienced glimpses of a better life, transitory as those experiences might have been, moments when they felt more at home in their skin in a world where they belonged and they could make better sense of the news they received. Not lost and wandering and constantly fearfully agitated by a future seemingly chaotic, leading to a dusty death in a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. So, it's not a question of returning to the good old days, says Edward Curtin. The future beckons. But he says, if we don't find a way to rediscover those essential human needs of slowness and silence, to name but two... Then he says, I'm afraid we'll find ourselves speeding along into an inferno of our own making where it's noisy as hell and not fit for human habitation. Guy's got a poetic way with words, but I also think he's got a great point. What was good from the past that you would like to bring with you into the future? There's the real question. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. It gives me a lot of happiness each day to to get to sit behind this microphone and share with you what I hope is information that will both enlighten, inspire, empower, and encourage. And that's not always easy because there's a lot of complicated stuff going on and sometimes it feels like uh, like it's all just this close to spiraling out of control. But I, I maybe I'm delusional when I say this, but I feel such a sense of anticipation in, in regards to the idea that I really believe for, for most of us, if you're within the sound of my voice, if this is a message that resonates with you, I think our greatest moments are still ahead of us. And I think that each one of us is is being extended 
an individual pathway to our own individual greatness that can only come if we are willing to, uh, to undergo a bit of refining. And I'm not one who enjoys being refined. I don't like having the dross burned off and, you know, being purified by, you know, passing through trials and fiery furnaces. But I can appreciate the process for what it is. And despite all the things that are discouraging or that sometimes seem overwhelming, I've never lost sight of the fact that I still believe God is absolutely in charge and more importantly, I believe he's accessible for those who are willing to seek him and, and, and try to find direction, to find the path to their personal greatness, no matter how ti- hard times may be or how good times may be. All right, moving on. There's a couple of things I wanted to cover here. Um, I know you're seeing prices go up. And maybe this is old news to you, but when I come across a great commentary, especially about inflation... I feel like this is a message that we all need to have better internalized as to what it is, why it's happening, because there's there's a lot of spin going on right now that says, well, you know, this is just natural and it's, you know, it's under control and don't worry about it. It's actually a good thing. That's that's the one that you know, the fact you're paying more for everything. Well, it's really a good thing. I want to share with you. This is a uh, an article from Brian McGlinchey from his Substack, Stark Realities. Inflation, a stealth tax with no maximum rate. And I think I touched on this a few weeks ago, but I just want to, again, drive this home for those who are wondering, why is everything costing more? Brian McGlinchey says, all across the economic dashboard, indication, hmm, let's try this, inflation indicators are blinking red. Most recently, he says, the personal consumption expenditures index calculated by the Bureau of Economic Analysis rose 5.7% between November 2020 to November 2021. And apparently that is the biggest year-over-year surge since September of 1983. Now, many mistakenly attribute today's rising prices to solely supply chain woes, and government officials are happy to fertilize that mythology. Kamala Harris's rambling answer to uh, what do we do about inflation or how do we address the inflation crisis, very good example of this, and he actually has a link to that in the article. But here's the takeaway. The truth is, in the words of economist Milton Friedman, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. In other words, today's rising prices are primarily the result of the Federal Reserve's relentless creation of new money, which serves to facilitate the government's multi-trillion dollar deficit spending addiction. Do not let them pass the buck and convince you that this is all normal and the way that things were intended. It's not. The Fed's rampant money creation facilitates deficit spending, but in the end, it doesn't actually pay for it. As Brian McClinchy explains, instead it functions as a massive scam that hides the price of all deficit spending by ultimately passing it on to all of us via inflation. And while the new money effect on prices is compounded by supply chain failures, those failures themselves are driven in part by higher demand fueled by the extra cash in circulation. Now, he goes into a lot of explanation here. He talks about how inflation hits low-income Americans hardest, how the Fed has painted itself into a corner. If you want to get your mind around what's happening to your money, why it buys less all the time, I think you'll find this very worthwhile. I'm going to shift gears for one last article here. This is from uh, Joaquin Book, 
I've been sharing a lot of his stuff lately, but he just has had some great insights. This is an article from the American Institute for Economic Research, Reality Decides in Economics and Evolutionary Biology Alike. And he's doing a review of uh, Heather Hyings and Brett Weinstein's book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which he says has a deep message of reality running through it. We can't detach ourselves from the evolutionary past that made us or separate our connection to reality. We should all be very careful with overruling longstanding advice given to you by culture or encoded into your genome and be very careful when you meddle with complex adaptive systems that you don't fully understand. Now, our world, they say, is hyper-novel, by which they mean a world in which so many new things have arisen that our genome, by extension, culture as well, has trouble keeping up. So the classic example is hunger and a desire for sweetness coupled with an abundant food that becomes maladaptive, so much that enlarged girths, heavier bodies, and a plethora of poor health outcomes followed. In every domain of life, schooling, mate selection, nutrition, health, becoming adults in the 21st century, we face novel levels of novelty and the selection simply can't keep up. Now, following Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, Hying and Weinstein point to people's failure to process each other's ideas cognitively, an emotional fragility seen across American universities as largely a problem with growing up. Practically speaking, believing the many strange things that, say, uh, woke or sociology professors do works. The many, those many strange things work only because there's no longer any noticeable punishment for believing nonsense. In many intellectual circles, the price for holding faulty ideas is zero or even negative. And Hying and Weinstein eloquently capture the connection to a biting reality. Quote, if you have not thrown or caught many balls or used hand tools or laid tile or driven a stick shift. In short, if you have little or no experience with the effects of your actions in the physical world and therefore have not had occasion to see the reactions they produce, then you will be more prone to believing in a wholly subjective universe in which every opinion is equally valid. Every opinion is not equally valid, and some outcomes don't change just because you want them to. Social outcomes may change if you argue or throw a fit. Physical outcomes will not. End quote. Now, no carpenter, they emphasize, or electrician could believe that all of reality is socially constructed. No forklift operator or sailor could believe that. While the ruthless discipline of the market is a little more arcane than the, than the physical laws governing a forklift, the point stands. People can only defy the hard reality that market prices present for so long before creditors and bankruptcy force factors of production out of their hands if customers don't value their product, and throwing a tantrum does nothing to help. This is a great article. I'm not going to have time to go through all of it, but... Um, I'll just give you a couple closing thoughts. Again, this is from Joaquin Book. He says, The most invigorating thing about the book and its tour de force is the author's advice for living better, which, like an economic lens to most of life's problems, are counterintuitive. Watch people's actions rather than the words that come out of their mouths. Move your body. Eat real food. Go outside when the sun is out. Don't shy away from it or drizzle sunscreen on your skin to inhibit your body's uptake of vitamin D or blood pressure, blood pressure regulation and circadian rhythms. Be skeptical of novel solutions to ancient problems. 
Expose your kids, anti-fragile style, to risks. And contrary to American sensitivities, have those kids play without adult supervision. You can fool a person and they can fool you, but you can't fool a tree or a tractor or a circuit or a surfboard. So seek out physical reality, not just social experience. Joaquin Book finishes by saying an evolutionary lens isn't just a corrective for how to live in the 21st century and how to understand our modern predicaments. It also teaches you how markets work, what constraints reality puts on us, and how to consider outcomes you don't like. Man, he's got a great take on stuff. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Please check it out for yourself. A quick shout-out to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George for being one of my sponsors. This is a family-owned business started back in 1984. You know, it's only changed hands three times in all that time. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. I know those will be familiar names for a lot of St. George residents, but they really take care of their customers. And if you are in any way interested in sewing or embroidery or long-arm quilting, They have the machines, they have the supplies, they have the technical know-how, they have the teachers who can show you how to use those machines to their full capability. And, of course, they service what they sell as well. Got a link in the show notes to the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. Tell them thanks for being a sponsor. Thank you for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And if you're so inclined, feel free to subscribe for my show notes. Just hit the subscribe button found in said show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.